All right, the road signs are going bilingual. NZTA has already done it with the Kura school signs and they're now considering rolling it out to the motorways, the warning signs, the destination signs. The vast majority of New Zealanders uh, speak English and it's really important that those uh, signs are quickly understandable. Bilingual road signs are not new. They might be new in New Zealand, but if you go, if you travel around the world, so many countries have bilingual road signs. But the debate about bilingualism goes beyond road signs. National Party leader Christopher Luxon says the level of te reo used in government departments is a problem. He said some people, older people, can't tell the difference between te whatu ora, waka kotahi and te pukinga. Under New Zealand First, we will change all the woke virtue signalling names of every government department back to English. What waka kotahi is proposing isn't exactly groundbreaking. Bilingual signage was used first are used in Wales in the 70s, mm. quite some time ago. Yeah, so we're 2023, well behind. Well behind. And so use in Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Welcome to the Embassy of Ireland. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, today on Māori, Welsh and Irish are three indigenous languages that have been suppressed through colonisation. As Aotearoa debates the value of being more bilingual, what lessons can we learn from the revitalisation of the Welsh and Irish languages? Hello, Venue, you Catherine Owen, we know with your e staff, we already all Gumre. Hello, my name is Catherine Owen, I'm a journalist at Stuff, and I'm originally from Wales. She's half Kiwi and half Welsh. I was born and bred in Wales um, on an island called Anismorn, also known as Anglesey in English. My dad is Welsh and grew up on that same island and it goes back many, many years, centuries. <laughs> and my mum is a Kiwi, so she was on her OE, was working in, in England and they met in England and then moved to, moved to Anglesey and had me and that was 29 years ago. <laughs> so a wee while. I moved to New Zealand in 2011. What's your first language? So this is a tricky one. I have two first languages. I grew up speaking both Welsh and English at the same time. I would speak Welsh with my dad, English with my mum. So it was a bit, My I think my brain was a bit confused. I think in both. I go between both, even now living in New Zealand as well, even though I'm not speaking it as regularly. But both... Welsh and English were spoken at home. My mum had to learn Welsh to be able to work as a teacher where we grew up. I'd never really spoke Welsh with mum unless it was she's wanting to say something in secret or something if we're in New Zealand, um, a <laughs> <laughs> bit of a gossip or something. But she'll sometimes tell us off in Welsh when we were younger, but other than that, I never spoke Welsh with my mum. Yeah, so, so how important is Welsh in, in Wales? It's so important. Um, te Reo Māori is a taonga. Um, that's similar to Welsh. It's a treasure of, of Wales. It's not only to my heritage, but everyone else's heritage in Wales, even if some people in Wales can't speak Welsh, but they still treasure the language. But Welsh hasn't always been so treasured. In 1536, Henry VIII passed the Act of Union, which prohibited the use of Welsh in public administration and the legal system. While the language is undergoing a revitalisation, Welsh speakers are still in the minority. Just over half a million people speak it, not quite 20% of the Welsh population. When my, my nine, my grandma, was 
at school, she wasn't allowed to speak Welsh. They did all their lessons, speaking was in English. And in the 19th century, so like quite a few years before my grandma was born, um, in the late 19th century, they would have students would be punished for speaking Welsh and they would have to carry around a sign, like a wooden like sign with a WE non, which is the Welsh knot. So if oh. you were caught speaking Welsh, you would be caned, beaten, get that sign around you, and then that sign could be passed on to another student. That sounds terrible. So that was like every school in the country? Yeah, every school That was like a law that they had to... Yeah. Wow, okay. So... It seems to have changed a little bit since then. Yes, definitely. So in, I think it was 1967, the Welsh language act came into to place and that was when both Welsh and English had to be treated as equal. And then I know there was an update to that in 93. Every school in Wales has to teach Welsh. So every student from the age of four or five to up until your GCSE, so I think that's level one here, so 16, 15, 16 has to do Welsh. So it's like English here. Um, but you have to do both Welsh and English. And I have a GCSE in Welsh as a first language, but you also have to do it as a second language. So if you're moving from England or your parents are English and they're not speaking Welsh in the home, you still have that Welsh qualification. So, so how is Welsh ingrained to kind of everyday life in Wales? It's the equivalent to English, you know, like here you've got your schooling is through English. In Wales, the schooling is through Welsh and English. You know, you've got road signs, which I know is the debate at the moment in New Zealand. That's everywhere. Since 93, that's been... They, it used to be that English would be first and then Welsh second. Now it's Welsh first and English second. So you've got them everywhere. It doesn't matter. And it has to be not only road signs, but also signs on public buildings, so schools, um, offices, like councils the government, it's also through courts. You know, if you're a Welsh speaker and you feel more comfortable having your case heard through Welsh, that's fine. Um, same with the government. It's dual, very bilingual. They're treated equally. Like, do you go into cafes, you go into shops, everything's in Welsh, you know, yes. you go and buy a product at the supermarket, the milk says, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so you'll, have, like, you'll have your big chain supermarkets, but there will be... The Welsh milk will have like, so milk is llefrith, so it will have llefrith Cymraeg, which means Welsh milk. And they'll have, you know, similar to New Zealand, that we'll have like a little flag or like made in New Zealand or Kiwi products, whatever. But in, in Wales, it will have the Welsh dragon flag on it. And it will either be, it'll be in Welsh. You've got local products that are made, which will be in Welsh, but it'll also have the English as well. And you can go a whole day without speaking a lick of English. Um, mm. It's very easy to do. Just say you're going to a, a sports match. You know, you've got Wales and New Zealand playing. Mm. Which, Firstly, which team do you support? I support Wales, firstly, <laughs> because I, my mum will probably disagree with me there, but I was born in Wales. That's my heritage. Um, I hold it probably closer than the All Blacks. And Wales is the underdog. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, secondly, what do you shout? What are your words to support? Um, well... The Welsh are famous for their singing, so, I mean, I can hold a tune. I'm not going to sing right now, but oh. <laughs> we'd, it's more singing. It's not, you know, you'll be singing songs that are in Welsh or Calon Lan, which is a famous one. Um, 
the national anthem in Welsh is quite strong and powerful, I think. I mean, some words cannot be repeated because they're not <laughs> appropriate. But, yeah, you, it's jovial and, yeah, it's never in English. Christchurch um, My name is Dermot Coffey, or Dermot O'Coffig is the Irish version. Um, I come from Killarney in County Kerry in Ireland, and I live in Ototahi Christchurch, where I've been for the last five years and in New Zealand for just over 20 years now. I am the Cochirloch, or the chair, it's a very kind of, uh, sounds a lot bigger than it is, of a branch of a group called Conran the Goelga, and we are Conran the Goelga Aotearoa, so we're the New Zealand branch of Conran the Goelga, which is an organisation based in Dublin and founded in 1893 to revitalise the Irish language. Dermot learned a bit of Irish at school, but his language awakening didn't happen until he was in Wellington. This would have been like in my kind of 20 years of not speaking any Irish. So I was in the, the library, you know, in that Clark's Cafe there, it was up in the mezzanine area. Nice coffee they'd have there. And I was just sitting down having a coffee and um, I heard a family of people behind me speaking away in Irish, which is not something here too often in Wellington, you know. So I kind of stood up and turned around and walked over to them ready to dazzle them with my Irish and I opened my mouth and I realised I hadn't the foggiest idea what to say. I'd forgotten everything. My mind went completely blank. So I kind of just blushed and turned around and walked away, you know. Um, But I never forgot it. I never forgot that sense of like, I should be able to say, I should be able to speak Irish here, but I can't. It's really, it's just such, it gnaws away at you. And I actually told a story once and someone said to me, I think I know who those people were. They were over visiting me. If I met them again, I'd be more than happy to go up and say hello to them. If I meet Irish people now, just kind of, you know, on a day-to-day basis, it's lovely to just start with a few few words, and you can kind of get a few words of Irish What in. does that mean? That's just a few words in Irish. And so you can start the conversation in Irish and some people will keep on going and other people won't. And, you know, it's fine either way, but it's just nice to get it out there. Irish is taught in schools, but beyond that, Dermot's exposure to the language was limited. I grew up in an English-speaking house. Um, I went to an English-speaking school. And my exposure to Irish was through my schooling, uh, where Irish is a compulsory language right from when you start school to when you leave at the, at the end of um, your schooling. So 12 or 13 years, depending on how long you spend in school. And that's my exposure to Irish was learned two, two and a half hours a week. Um, and over the years, it became a bit more visible on the television, an Irish language television mm. station started. We have Irish language radio. Um, and I finished school and people finishing school will usually have a reasonable standard of Irish and be able to carry on a conversation. But then you leave school and there's nowhere to speak it unless you seek it out. And of course, most people don't. So you gradually, the, the knowledge you had, you kind of lose. So when you were growing up, uh, how prevalent was Irish day-to-day outside the two or so hours you did at school every week? It, it wasn't that prevalent. It, it is on, like, and it's, you know, a topic of discussion, obviously, at the moment, and one of the things we really want to support, but it's, it's, it's visible in that it's on road signs, it's on buildings. It's the first language of the state, so it's the first official language is, is Irish, and say for the Constitution in 1937... There's an English and an Irish version 
if there's a conflict between them, it's the Irish version that gets precedence. It became part of the kind of nation building as, as, as Ireland became an independent or the Republic of Ireland became an independent country. And it became a compulsory language in school. It was a compulsory language for a long time for civil service employees. Um, but at the same time, all the time, the language in the heartland, in the Gaeltacht regions, was decreasing because of economic factors, people leaving, people emigrating. Day to day, do you see Irish in, say, the supermarket or a cafe? Could you go into a pub and ask for a pint of Guinness and any pub in Ireland and Irish or not reach that? You you can, you can. You probably in a lot of places will find that people will understand you're speaking Irish to them and will say or, you know, I don't understand the question or something like that. But the the census results came out like literally yesterday and the questions were asked about people's um, languages they speak at home and the languages they can speak and so on. So the the number of people in Ireland, and it was the first time the question was asked who, who self-declare now, but the number of people who self-declare that they have a very good standard, a very high standard of Irish, which will, I think, imply fluency in the language, um, is just under 200,000. So that's out of a population in the Republic of 5.1. But that's 200,000. It's not a huge amount. It's about 4%. So you can imagine if you walk into a room and there's 30 people there, probably one or two of them will have really good Irish and another four or five will have decent Irish. So th- these are the figures that have come through. So I think that was a slightly surprising number. It's more than was expected. The The future, I think, is maybe more hopeful than it has been for a long time. That's not to underestimate the the difficulties the language face. It's, it's you know, it's a vulnerable language just like Te Reo Māori. But the efforts that the Irish state have made and the efforts that the Irish people have made over the years do seem to bear some fruit here in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, we would hope the same thing would happen because I think a world in which Irish exists is richer than a world in which Irish doesn't exist. Mm. And a world in which Te Reo Māori exists is richer for everyone. No matter where you are, it's, it's a richer world when the more languages that, that exist. And there, you know, there are many things that are putting them in danger. The Republic of Ireland itself, is, are there many kind of arguments against Irish? And if so, what are they? There is a vocal minority, and it is a minority, and the, the studies show that, you know, around about 70% of the population are very positive about the language. That's a, you know, a super majority, I suppose you could call it. The arguments you'd hear will kind of focus on the cost. It's too expensive. It's an official language of Ireland. It's an official language of the European Union now. So a lot of documents are translated into Irish. So that costs money, and, you know, that, that, that the money could be used better for other things, or... A policy that they want to put in is where 20% of the civil service will now be fluent in Irish and this is a target. And again, this is decried as a waste of time and a waste of, of effort. You talk about the kind of arguments, waste of money, waste of time. That's also kind of an argument in New Zealand, isn't it, at the moment? Mm. You know, the National Party, for instance, is saying... There's 54,000 potholes in this country. Uh, and so uh, rather than generating signs and putting them up everywhere, I'd actually sooner us actually fix the potholes. Shouldn't we be focused on fixing those? rather than doing something that isn't a priority? I would say that they are fallacious arguments. I think the consultation is very clear that the um, change in signage isn't going to add any really significant cost or any significant effort. A lot of these signs have a natural lifespan and they'll be changed when they need to be changed. Um, 
So it doesn't mean the potholes can't be can't be fixed. I I think it it was disappointing that National took the initial stance that they did and seem still to be kind of fudging it. Um, now I'm not a member of any political party, but um, the my feeling and from you know discussing it with people and looking online and um, messages from our members of Conrad and the Gaelga here is that the 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 vast majority of people will support it. I think it's a re- it's a really good thing for the country. It will be something that tourists and travellers to the country will love to see. It gives a great point of difference, um, you know, when it's done. So it's an important thing to do. It's a good thing to do for the language. The potholes they'll need to be fixed, but you know, the sign changing isn't for the roads. It's for Tereo Maori. It's for us. It's for us to be able to be exposed to the language more and to get an opportunity to read it and see it on a day-to-day basis. In Wales, in 1993, the Welsh Language Act came into effect. The aim? To ensure Welsh and English are treated equally. It made it a legal requirement for all road signs and other public signage to be bilingual. Some signs there used to have English and then Welsh on the sign. Now it's Welsh on the sign first and then English. So you'll have, you know, slow down. Well, you'll have that first in Welsh and then in English. Well, slow down. Um, you'll have Arav and then slow. And lots of people who go over to Wales will say, how do you say it? It's Arav. Um, but it's it's common to see. It would be very uncommon to see a sign not have the English sign on it as well. Is that not a safety concern? I mean, that's some of the argument over here in New Zealand at the moment. I don't think it is a safety concern. Also, if you're driving, you've you've done the road code. Most of the most of the signs are pictures. You know, the pictures are universal regardless of what country you go to. In Europe, there's signs in French, Spanish, Italian, and English. Um, what's the difference to having Tereo in English? It's the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally am for it. I don't see why anyone would be against it. Ireland and Aotearoa might be on opposite sides of the world. But there are shared challenges when it comes to revitalising indigenous languages. There has been a, a connection over the years between Te Reo and, and Irish because they're both languages which have declined as a result of English, as a result of colonisation. And Irish is often used as a kind of an example language for um, people who support efforts to revitalise Te Reo Māori or people who do not support efforts. I remember in... 2017, uh, David Seymour said that Irish was the Brussels sprouts of languages. Look at the Irish. They've had compulsory Gaelic for 90 years. It's turned Gaelic into sort of the Brussels sprout of languages in Ireland. Uh, People eat it only because they're forced to and it makes them resent it. And it hasn't actually made big inroads into the number of Gaelic speakers in Ireland anyhow. At the time, it kind of was one of the things that I suppose inspired us to start Conrad and Gaelic because that is an absolute fallacy. The vast majority of people in Ireland are very supportive of the language and wish they had more opportunities to speak it, despite the fact that it is a compulsory language in school and there are issues with that. But it is a language that is um, has a generally a very positive uh, meaning for people in Ireland, both in Ireland and overseas. Um, and I think it's, you know, the, the things like that, when you read about them in, in the media, Irish being used as a, and it was around compulsory learning of Te Reo Māori in school and Irish was being used as a stick to beat the native language of New Zealand and just didn't like seeing that happen. So hopefully we can 
dispel some of the myths around uh, Irish at the, at the same time as helping people learn it. So how often do you speak Irish nowadays? Um, I would speak, so we have, I would say about three, four days a week. I'd, you know, get maybe an hour in and I listen to radio every day. I've got my favourite sort of shows. And there's people now with whom I've only ever spoken Irish. And um, I was listening to one of them was at a a meeting. I was watching it online and he started speaking English and it just sounded so bizarre just listening to him. So you can create a kind of a, you can create like what we call in Irish a pubble, a kind of community around you with whom it's natural to speak Irish and it becomes unnatural to speak English very, very quickly. Yeah, look, thank you very much, um, Dimit. Really appreciate it. No problem. Gurvila uh, What does that mean? That means thank you very much. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Right. Bye. Bye. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, Today's podcast was engineered by Mark Chesterman. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Ketra Nowen and Dermot Coffey. Ka kite anō. <laughs>